With your help, we can continue to fight for freedom, reach new audiences, and bring important information to the public free of charge. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom and donate today. Simply go to tntradio.live. With a compelling perspective on global politics, this is The Patrick Henningsen Show on TNT Radio. All right. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome. It's Friday. Thank you guys very much for joining us here. Hello to everybody in the TNT chat community. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. You're listening to TNT Today's News Talk, and uh, it's going to be a momentous weekend. There's a lot at stake this weekend. We'll try to cover the latest breaking news. This could be a major development uh, in the Israel Palestine Gaza crisis. Uh, there is a truce. There is a ceasefire. It has been confirmed. It is now in active mode. Uh, but for how long? That's the question. There's already exchange of fire has been reported. We'll get the up to the minute details of all this from our veteran war correspondent who's on the ground in the middle of uh, joining us in the first hours. Give us all of the essential details. The U-turns, the pivots, we're going to get all of that in power and that will be going to happen with regards to this agreement. We'll hold for the three or days. Uh, will it lead to something positive or will it revert back to the fighting as it were uh, before today? We'll get all that from Layla. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. We'll be connecting her live from uh, Lebanon. And also in the second hour, we'll be joined by our legal correspondent, Matthew Russell Lee from Inner City Press. Uh, he's going to be joining us on the live link with the traumas and dramas in the federal court system in the United States. He'll also weigh in on how this crisis in the Middle East is actually affecting not just the UN, but some of the politics uh, in the run up to the 2024 election. That's what matters, ladies and gentlemen, is what's moving the needle on the election coming up in the United States. We'll do our best to find out what the mechanisms are there. So I look forward to that conversation with uh, Matthew Russell Lee. So according to sources on all sides, uh, the ceasefire or truce agreement has begun four days four days it's meant to be and this is it's going to coincide with the time release of hostages uh, on both sides and so will this be successful we'll know at the end of today uh, but before that anything could probably happen and there's 101 reasons why this agreement could actually uh, break down so we're going to hopefully flesh all that out in a few minutes uh, in the first hour with our guest Layla Hatoum and uh, as if we posted uh, as we posted up at 21stCenturyWire.com, um, there's a dark cloud which is gathering over Ukraine. And this has been an absolute disaster. In the last month alone, as I reported previously, uh, this is according to Russian MOD, whose numbers have been fairly reliable uh, over the last 18 months with the conflict. Ukraine's lost 13,000, 13,000 troops in October. So... What does that mean? Well, you can guess that recruitment is probably down. So right now, the government in Kiev, the Zelensky government is doing forced conscription. So they're basically forced drafting people uh, off the street. We have reports of uh, recruiters going into nightclubs and press ganging people uh, in restaurants, public swimming pools, places like this, uh, even in gymnasiums. So they're looking for anybody who's potentially uh, of age to serve in the military. I guess that's over 18, but recruitment's down. Morale is at an all-time low. Uh, we've also seen conscientious objectors uh, who are taking to social media like Telegram who have reported uh, that they were just finished a six-month prison sentence uh, after refusing to go to the front line. Press ganged off the street in Kiev and then sent to the immediately to the front line, given a uniform, given a rifle, and then sent out to the front line. And some of the some of the forced conscripts rebelled, were imprisoned for six months, did a six-month sentence. Uh, and then the day before their release, they were put into a van and then sent to the front line. I kid you not. So we're seeing more than one reports on this uh, on various Telegram channels, which we have actually reposted on our 21stCenturyWire.com Telegram channel. So you can go to there. Join our Telegram uh, channel, by the way, uh, for some of these updates. We get different types of content that we aggregate uh, on Telegram. Uh, and so that's that's a whistleblower, you could say, and he's not alone. 
So you look at the average age going up and up and up in Ukraine in terms of the age, the people that they're press ganging and putting into service. There, the losses are mounting. I mean, this. Imagine over how many years the United States in Iraq? What, uh, fifteen years? And the Iraqi occupation and how many U.S. troops are lost during that fight? I don't know. What probably somewhere between uh, three thousand, four thousand, four thousand five hundred, maybe. Uh, maybe over that 10-year stretch. And that was seen as a bridge too far from a lot of Americans. Now imagine if that was 350,000 or 400,000. Would that be acceptable to any country? And the answer to that question has to be no. So imagine what this is like in Ukraine. This is an absolute crisis in Ukraine. So the Zelensky regime is on borrowed time right now. And as we said previously, you know, what it's going to probably look like in terms of the transition would be a military coup. And as we also said previously, you'd look to the United States to be backing that military coup and then spiriting Zelensky out of Kiev and then to London, probably, or to Washington, D.C., where he would be decamped as a sort of semi-government in exile figure. Uh, but it would be a military takeover, a military coup led by Zeluzhny. There's already reports that Zelensky and Zeluzhny, the head of the defense armed forces, that they're on the outs. And Zelensky has publicly criticized uh, Zeluzhny uh, in recent weeks. And that's actually a, a red line if you consider how tenuous the situation is in Ukraine. You have to remember, this is a government that has basically uh, stopped the press. They've stopped free speech. Uh, they've stopped freedom of religion. They've banned the Ukrainian Orthodox Church uh, because of its affiliations with the Russian Orthodox Church. This is the original Ukraine uh, Orthodox Church. And what else have they banned? And they've also banned the uh, ability for people to leave the country uh, if you're a male of serving age. And that that basically 18 to 60 so they're actually press ganging people in their 50s uh, to go to the front line. That's a dire situation. Hence, the losses are mounting. You can imagine if you don't have trained soldiers, uh, you're going to you're going to incur heavy losses uh, on the front lines. So all of this stacks up to be an absolute disaster. And to add insult to injury, Poland, Poland's uh, at the end of their rope uh, now with Ukraine. The people have had it. The truckers in Poland. Uh, have waged a massive strike on the border with Ukraine. What are they striking about? They're trying to blockade the border because the EU has decided in their infinite wisdom to grant Ukrainian haulers uh, free license to come in and out of the EU as they see fit. And with little regulations and checks uh, going on the Ukrainian side, And the Poles are asked to give them special treatment as they come into the EU. So they're given a sort of Schengen visa treatment in terms of trade. You can imagine what this means in terms of smuggling, trafficking, not just trafficking goods, maybe trafficking humans as well. This is something Ukraine is notorious for. Uh, So in this environment where they've given Ukraine sort of carte blanche, sort of de facto EU status without official EU status, the Poles are absolutely livid because Ukrainians Ukrainians are flooding the Polish market with cheaper, inferior goods. And of course, that's hurting their business. So this is why they've gone on strike this week. This is a big deal. And the political reverberations on this are being felt in Warsaw for sure, as the people lose their patience with this open-ended proxy war against Russia being waged by Washington and NATO. And Poland is really at the tip of the spear on this effort. They wouldn't have been able to do this without the cooperation and the enthusiasm of the Polish government. That's something you have to remember. So that's where the tip of the spear was to get this whole operation into place. And so this is where the single point of failure is going to be as well. They couldn't have done it without Poland and without Poland, they're not going to be able to continue. So now you're seeing the discontent uh, over the Polish border. And that's also a telltale sign that things are not looking good and it doesn't look like they're going to improve anytime soon. So the bottom line is everybody's looking for a convenient exit out of this but one in which they can save face. That's very important. And saving face for Washington on this means some sort of a deal, some sort of a, I don't know, peace agreement or some sort of a frozen conflict. So I think the latter is more likely because the latter comes with all sorts of benefits. If you're able to keep a 
built-up military position right along the Ukrainian border and right along the Belarusian border and really pushing the uh, old Iron Curtain line or the NATO line, pushing it further east. And that would be a win for the United States. However, Sweden, Sweden's NATO bid uh, looks like it's on the rocks right now. Turkey's not keen. Turkey's not keen as well. That's another report. Maybe we'll talk about that in the second hour uh, before we touch base with Matt Lee in New York City. In the meantime, uh, we're going to take a break with TNT Today's News Talk. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. On the other side, we're going to be connecting with veteran journalist on the ground in Lebanon. Leila Hatoum is going to be joining us for uh, an update on the ceasefire, all the ins and outs of this deal, whether it's going to hold or not. We'll find all this out on the other side. So stay right there. You should hear what George Eliasson is talking about. Donald Trump's wolves. Now, we've talked about the Colorado case, the 14th Amendment case, and the judge has denied uh, the motion to dismiss. Now, if you don't remember, the suit cites the 14th Amendment clause banning those who participate or assist in the insurrection from taking office. And they're making this legal argument based on Trump's actions before and on January 6th. And when they claim that the Thousands of his supporters were creating an act of sedition at the Capitol. During January 6th, um, Trump actually offered to call the National Guard in. He told the protesters to keep things peaceful. And this is all public knowledge. This isn't a political action. They're trying to control once again who can run for the office of president and who cannot. War of the Worlds with George Eliason on today's News Talk. TNT Radio. The Light is Britain's far-right conspiracy theory paper spreading hate and vicious lies. No, that's what the BBC say. The Light is the only national newspaper bringing you the real news and informed opinion on what's really going on today. You can subscribe, order copies, submit articles and read back issues on our website, thelightpaper.co.uk and see for yourself why the establishment are so worried about the uncensored truth getting out to people every month. They've launched a new service called Wake Up Your Neighbours, where you can get copies delivered to the streets right around you if you don't want to do it yourself. The Light Paper. Not for right, just right so far. Thelightpaper.co.uk Our next steps to space. This time we go back to the moon to learn to live, to work, to invent, to create. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. All right, welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. We're still in the first hour of this live broadcast. Thank you guys for joining us. And uh, briefly, uh, in just a few minutes, we're going to be going on the ground to Lebanon uh, with veteran uh, war correspondent and reporter Leila Hatoum. It's going to be joining us in just a few minutes to iron out the details of this truce, this ceasefire, and what it's all about and what's happening. So we'll, we'll talk about that. We're also going to talk about uh, how the sort of hostilities are progressing, especially on the northern Israeli and southern Lebanese front. This is where everybody's looking at the moment, certainly from a Washington point of view. This is where they're looking at the moment with great intent, because this is why the United States has parked up uh, its military naval assets just off the coast there to send a message to Hezbollah in Lebanon um, that they may or may not act, but they're there in support of their ally uh, Israel. So that's that's where things are heading at the moment. So we'll hopefully get some clarification on some of these situations uh, when we bring on our guest, um, Leila Hatoum. Uh, yeah, we will have her on the line just in a moment, I think. I think we do have her. So uh, when she's uh, able to connect, uh, if she's able to connect and she's ready to go, uh, just give a thumbs up to our uh, producer and we can, uh, yeah, we can introduce her. So I think we're going to bring her on the line right now. Uh, veteran uh, correspondent in the Middle East, Leila Hatoum, is joining us on the live link right now. Leila, how are you? Hi, all is well. Glad to be back here. It's great to have you back as well. Um, I hope you're well there. Um, I know things are very tense uh, where you are in your part of the world, and there's a lot going on and some very disturbing developments as well in southern Lebanon. Let's get to that. But first, Leila, I want to know um, how you're observing and watching this ceasefire agreement. Um, exactly what does it entail? And is there any uh, fissures, any breaks in this, any potential threats that this might upend itself within t by the end of today? Will, what are the chances it will make it through the weekend? Go ahead, Leila. 
Um, ever since they announced the ceasefire from both sides, the Israeli and Hamas, uh, we have noticed there are more than two uh, Israeli uh, breaches for that ceasefire. The Israeli um, occupation forces actually opened fire against Palestinians returning to their homes in northern Gaza. And one person got killed. We are informed that he's a child, as well as four others injured as well. From Tol Karim, east of Tol Karim, uh, opposite of Offer uh, prison, uh, the Israeli um, uh, prison, uh, military prison uh, Offer, there were several people, several Palestinians waiting for their loved ones to be released today during the, the exchange of prisoners. And uh, the Israelis actually also opened fire against uh, those people. They killed a, they killed a child that's um, 16 years of age and uh, they basically, they terrorized the rest of the people over there. They threw grenades at um, uh, reporters and at the same time they started basically hitting and pushing people uh, away. But the idea is that those are the actual physical uh, breaches on the ground. In the air, the Israelis continue to have their drones patrolling south of Lebanon, which is basically um, across the blue line from the northern Palestinian front. And for, for some people, they call it the northern Israeli front. And um, over Gaza, we had uh, several uh, citations, but still unconfirmed, of um, Israeli overflights at a higher uh, altitude. I had to check with my um, air traffic controllers uh, in the region, and they said that there were some movement for um, uh, military cargo uh, planes, but not over Gaza, near Gaza, because of the new base, uh, training base in Negev, in, in the Negev desert. And um, there, are th there are talks at the moment, uh, an hour ago, that uh, the Israelis have also moved their drones in the, in the central sector of uh, Gaza as well. So that's, that constitutes another breach. Um, from the Lebanese side and from Hamas side, there has been no breaches until now. Uh, shortly before the ceasefire took uh, place at 7 a.m. in the morning, our time zone, uh, the Israelis uh, bombarded uh, the Lebanese uh, sovereign territories in Sahel al-Khiyam and Marjayoun. Uh, that's opposite of the Galilee panhandle. And uh, uh, that did not constitute a breach of uh, ceasefire at, the, at that time because it was around 6.45 to 6.48 a.m. However, the overflights and the drones continue, so that constitutes a ceasefire. Uh, from Hezbollah's side, they maintained a cautious ceasefire. If the Israelis breach as expected, Hezbollah is going to retaliate in self-defense because Lebanon is currently in self-defense mode, as I had um, previously told you. The Israelis had attacked Lebanon, Lebanese sovereign territories first, so Lebanon is in self-defense defense mode. No matter what it does, it's self-defense uh, under international law. From the Hamas side, they have from Hamas side, they have adhered to the ceasefire. There were no hostile action. Overnight, there was plenty of um, uh, clashes and uh, basically um, hit and run, uh, fight and flight. Uh, the Israelis sustained some uh, injuries uh, overnight. Over the past 48 hours, the Israelis sustained heavy deaths and injuries. Uh, basically, the toll was about um, 15 soldiers, as we had learned from our boots on the ground, 15 dead soldiers, dead Israeli soldiers, and um, scores that basically they said tens dead. We don't have the final number on that one. We know from the funerals and from uh, basically the families that were alerted that their sons were dead. Uh, Hamas so far has not breached the ceasefire, I repeat that, and they had handed over 13 detainees, Israeli detainees, that they had to the Red Cross. They crossed uh, the Rafah uh, border, the Rafah border crossing towards Egypt, and until basically the past hour, they weren't basically, uh, they weren't uh, handed over to the Israeli side yet, but they were safe with, um, with the Red Cross in uh, Egypt. Same thing goes for um, the Palestinian uh, detainees that were held by the Israelis. The Israelis, if you know, if you have noticed, over the past six weeks, have had ramped up their uh, action against uh, Palestinian civilians in the West Bank, be it in Jenin, Nablus, Tolkarim, Ramallah, basically east of the, the it's in Ramallah and Bethlehem as well, closer to Jerusalem and the state, uh, cities are around that, detaining Palestinians, mostly women and children, to use them as leverage and pressure card against Hamas. Um, the detainees have not fully been handed over to Hamas side yet, so we're waiting for that. Uh, there are talks that uh, some of the political names that were released um, might uh, find refuge outside the country, by the uh, basically outside the Palestine and occupied Palestine, by uh, the states that brokered the ceasefire. So we could see some of Hamas leaders moving to Qatar at one point or another, or Turkey, you never know. And uh, at the same time, um, uh, the Israelis, there's a fear, there's a genuine fear that the Israelis might continue to detain Palestinians and then attack and kill and assassinate those who were released because the Israelis had vouched that in a publicly open speech by the Prime Minister Benjamin Milikowski Netanyahu 
and uh, general uh, his basically his defense minister the former army general uh, uh, Yoav Gallant and also by Benny Gantz so every single general out there as well as Benjamin Netanyahu had vouched to continue to hunt down and kill and assassinate those Hamas leaders even if they are found in a third country or a different country which constitutes an act of terrorism against um, those countries that host these people and so just just to be clear uh, it, this is a, something that doesn't get a lot of coverage Leila is that there's a, an agreement to exchange uh hostages prisoners what have you but during this period since October 7th uh, Israel occupation forces have detained thousands of additional Palestinians from uh, the West Bank mainly right uh, East Jerusalem included as well over 1400 Palestinians who were actually detained until yesterday and they continue today so there were con there were continued um, uh, arrests and basically there were israelis it's not only the Israel you have to understand it's not only the israeli occupation forces who are carrying the aggressions against palestinians in the west bank but also the israeli settlers who come from from several cities um, uh, and so sorry, sorry several illegal settlements out there armed they are the ones who were supported by ben gvir he is the radical minister in uh, netanyahu's cabinet and they are attacking Palestinian civilians either killing them, shooting to harm, or detaining them and basically creating that fight so that the Israeli army would come also and detain them. Um, now the cities have been dismembered by the Israeli occupation forces because they have set um, checkpoints at every other road that bans the people from going anywhere. Because if you approach, as I, we had mentioned last time, um, if you approach any of those checkpoints, you will be shot to be killed. It's not a shooting to warn. That's the difference. And they continue to go into the Blata, for example, refugee camp uh, between Janine and Nablus, they go uh, over there, the Israeli occupation forces go over there, they storm into houses, they storm into houses and they start detaining people or beating them up or stealing things from them. Today we received uh, uh, an update from our friend Nina, who is basically, she, she fact checks everything that happens and all the information that comes out. And she confirmed that one of the detainees, um, she's a female, her parents were getting ready to, to welcome her back to her house. She was detained over the past uh, seven weeks. And the Israelis stormed into their house, beat everybody, stole the candy that was set to celebrate her release, and then left. I mean, like, they are that petty. They are that petty. Imagine that. Candy. But I'll give no, them the benefit a... of the doubt. They're hungry. You never know. So uh, go ahead, Layla. Actually, hold on. We're going to go to break uh, in just a moment here with TNT. When we come back, uh, we're going to continue where we left off here, getting an update on the ceasefire truce agreement uh, in, in Gaza and also beyond how the fighting is shaping up uh, on the northern border of Israel, southern Lebanon as well. And Patrick Henningsen will be back in just a moment. Stay there. The climate agenda is a national security risk. Where do you hear this? From Washington, D.C., this is the Morano Minute with your host, TNT Radio's Mark Morano. The climate and energy policies of California are threatening the security of residents. California has increased crude oil imports from foreign countries from 5% just 25 years ago to more than 75% today. According to Heartland analyst Ronald Stein, California is the only state in the United States that imports most of its crude oil feedstock to instant state refineries from foreign countries. California needs this oil for nine international airports and 41 military airports, as well as shipping ports up and down the coast. Meanwhile, Asia has 88 new oil refineries manufacturing fuel for California's airports and shipping terminals. It's time we recognize that the climate agenda is a national security threat. This is Mark Morano for the Morano Minute on TNT Radio. Need a ride? Yeah! Driving with kids is a big responsibility. Hop in and buckle up! So don't sweat the small stuff. You got paint all over our paper! Get the big stuff right instead. What does that mean? Like making sure your kids are in the correct car seat and buckled up for safer travel. That deserves a wiggly wiggly wig! To make sure your child is in the right seat for their age and size, visit NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. Speaking on the issues that impact, this is The Patrick Henningsen Show on TNT Radio.
Welcome back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to this live broadcast. We're still in the first hour here at TNT, today's news talk. And we're getting an update uh, from on the ground from a veteran journalist, Layla Hatoum, is joining us from Lebanon right now. Um, Layla, uh, now, the other thing we're going to ask you is this. Um, what are your feelings uh, on the prospects of this temporary truce holding through the weekend? Um, I know you mentioned a number of things before that could easily cause this to sort of go up in flames and back to square one. Uh, but what are your what are your feelings about the the risks that are uh, inherent in all this right now? Go ahead. Um, despite the fact that the situation on the ground sounds like basically two devils dancing over a thin ice thin layer of ice that's over a volcano. I always use that metaphor because it's that serious. Um, I think it will hold until Sunday. The reason is that Netanyahu, does he cannot risk extra anger against him. People need their sons and daughters back. So at least he needs a batch of those prisoners to come back before he continues with his carpet bombing and genocide against the Palestinians. There will be some breaches here and there, but at a minor scale, to the extent that it does not merit a, re, a major, major retaliation from Hamas or from Hezbollah, both Hamas and Hezbollah are smart enough. They've been in the field for the longest time. So they, so they do understand that basically the Israelis are trying to blame them for any possible breach of uh, of the ceasefire. Um, so far, uh, the breaches have been from the Israeli side. So whatever happens, it will be on Israelis' hands. But if a major thing escalates from the other side, which is Hamas or Hezbollah, then they will be fully blamed for that. And they completely understand that. But I fear what might happen after Sunday, after the three-day ceasefire. Um, the idea is that um, the Israelis have vouched to continue to uh, uh, to attack Gaza. Some of their vows are kind of void because we know that they don't have enough capacity to continue with that for the longest time. Every single day that passes on Israel, it loses no less than quarter to half a billion dollars. And we're talking basically that's the direct impact on the Israeli economy and finances. So if it prolongs any further, that's irreplaceable damage for their economy and their financial uh, sector as well. Um, they need to finish this as soon as possible. It's hard for them to do it without external help. And that's why we always see the Israelis trying to create um, a larger front on both sides, the south and the north against it. So they would merit basically the Israeli, the Americans to come in and help them out and fight their fight. So far, this hasn't happened, and the Israelis feel the burn. That's why whenever you you hear them, uh, their voice is getting higher with a higher pitch and more uh, basically vows to, to inflict damage. That means they have been suffering long, and they have been suffering hard. They just try to go and cover it with, with basically shouting with more threats. And I know you've also been covering the you know the situation on the Rafa border crossing as well quite closely. You've been relaying a lot of those details to your audiences on different platforms. Now, uh, how important is it? Because it's it's all well and good, Layla, to have a truce or a ceasefire for three or four days, but this must be concomitant with a deliveries. There must be medical supplies. Things need to happen during this time. Is any of that happening uh, in coinciding with this cease temporary ceasefire? What what have you heard? Yeah, perhaps the only good thing about that ceasefire, actually, the second, the, the one of the good things that happened about this ceasefire is the entry of 38 trucks slowly but surely, because the Israelis at one point are kind of derailing the the, the process by asking for inspections, um, um, other matters as well. But we have eight uh, convoys moving in already since the morning, and um, uh, Egypt had at one point or another said that they haven't closed Rafah uh, border crossing at any point which is good news for us because the more aid that goes in, more uh, medication, food, water will be reaching civilians over there who have been starved and basically parched for the past six weeks. Uh, um, the, the, the injured ones who couldn't have anesthesia, who couldn't have medication, antibiotics, will now be receiving them on a larger scale. Um, blankets, uh, warm clothes for the winter because we have winter season over here. The nights are really cold and long. So they will be getting that, uh, fingers crossed. Um, what uh, I fear is that the Israelis might uh, do something to stir, uh, stir, basically uh, cause a, a stir in the area that might uh, lead to derailing of those eight, uh, uh, trucks coming in. So, um, yeah, I mean, the sad situation is that North Gaza, all of it, 
has bodies planted everywhere. You see that, but I mean, I've, I've been receiving footage from my boots on the ground. Some of uh, my colleagues who are reporters went over there to cover uh, the situation on the ground. You see that bodies everywhere. They said you can smell it from a distance. There are houses that uh, they were when they were taking out the rubble off the rubble, they found no less than 10 to 20 bodies, depending on the houses and the buildings. And they have been uh, decomposing over the past weeks. Nobody was able to actually pull them out or bury them because of the Israeli indiscriminatory bombing of areas and carpet bombing. So um, I, I do hope that uh, people will be able within those three days to bury as much, like uh, as many bodies as possible, because it's it's inhumane to keep these those bodies for vultures, for stray dogs, and for the sun to burn them. Um, and, and they're laying there out there. Most of them are civilians. Uh, there are char bodies that nobody knows the, um, the, their identity, so we can't know for sure if they are Hamas fighters or if they are at one point or another um, uh, other freedom fighters on the ground who joined Hamas later on in the fight against the Israeli occupation and incursion of Gaza. But most of the bodies on the ground are civilian, mostly women and children. So many to trapped uh, under concrete, under rubble that require, you know, equipment proper equipment teams uh, to be able to lift heavy uh, with the inflatable berms, you know, the equipment they use, the air compressors, none of that is available. So it's literally people doing it by hand and maybe with some bulldozer or, or JCB or something like that. So how many of these bodies, Layla? That's ahead. the sad part. They don't have enough shovels. They're using their hands. I mean, for the past 15 to 16 years, Israel has put Gaza under total blockade. It's not new. It's not recent. It's not from, from October 7 or October 8. It has been ongoing for the past 16 years. So you couldn't get construction material into Gaza without the approval of the Israelis. And most of the time, there was always a disapproval. No licensing allowed, no medication in, no food. So that, those materials that we need, the equipment that you need to actually lift off the rubble, as you said, it's not there. They have limited amount, like let's say if they have two trucks for the whole city or for the whole strip. It doesn't work that way. People are using their hands and their fingers just to lift off the rubble whenever they see, they hear a voice. And sometimes they are finding small animals, cats that have broken legs that are stuck under the rubble as well. And they're trying to help them. I mean, like it's indiscriminatory bombing of a whole area that was filled with civilians and animals at one point or another. And these these are not necessarily going to be counted in the, uh, the the number of civilian deaths that the Gaza Ministry of Health is keeping because there's so a lot of these people that are unaccounted for that you can't identify them they're just not being seen. So what what sort of numbers are we talking about in terms of potential missing? Because the official figures are around. If correct me if I'm wrong, Leila, uh, thirteen thousand five hundred dead right now so far uh, is that accurate and then how many potentially are missing closer at 14,800 at the moment uh, because they of the bodies that they counted as well today closer to 15,000 and we have no less than 6,000 that are still missing don't forget that there were some bodies that they were literally buried in mass graves and we saw some of the dead bodies that were buried in, in mass graves as well I mean the, the footage is out there uh, it's 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 yeah, it's beyond what I can actually say. I've, I've seen lots of damage. I've seen a lot of death across uh, over the past 22 years. I've covered the 2006 Israeli aggression on Lebanon when Israeli targeted Lebanese civilians sitting inside UN headquarters. I've seen decapitated babies, but I haven't seen this scale of destruction and death with, with such hatred. With such hatred, you don't bomb hospitals. They've went out on a, on a hunting spree against hospitals. Their victory is against hospitals. It's against civilians. It's not against military people on the ground. They don't, they're not targeting Hamas or anything. They don't know how to target Hamas. They're taking Hamas as an excuse just to exterminate the Palestinians over there. Mass graves, we need to have to go and revisit and do DNA testing to, to know whose son is who, who which, which body goes to, to which family. You had babies that were born from dead mothers whose fathers are missing until now. Nobody knows who this baby is. Babies, not one. You have orphaned kids who are at age three to eight years old who have no parents anymore. And the only thing they remember is their family name. They don't know their parents' name by, 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 by uh, uh, the first name. And you know, like basically when you grow up, when you're, when you're a kid, you call them mom and dad. You don't call them by their first name. So they only know their own name. Sometimes they only know their nickname because there's a pet, like pet name you call, you call your, your children. And the family name at one point or another, but not all of them know their family names. Not all of them are aware of their parents' names. So those are also registered children 
and yet to be identified. It's, it's, a, it's a dire humanitarian, it's a catastrophe on all humanitarian levels. Yes, yes. And, and, and the wor- the, one of the worst parts about this is, um, one of the most unsavory parts about this is, uh, in addition to what you said, Leila, is that these any of these claims or figures or the press releases being put out by the Gaza Ministry of Health, Western media, Western politicians, pundits are saying, oh, don't trust those uh, claims, don't trust those numbers, because it's probably Hamas propaganda. You probably heard some of these accusations as well um it's that that is one of the most unconscionable parts of it because isn't it true that actually isn't the pa fund don't they fund and aren't aren't they in charge of the gaza ministry of health is it is it the pa or yeah uh it's not only the pa they do uh i mean uh, gaza has its own economy and that's basically funded by external aid most of Gaza's economy relies on external aid, and the whole of Gaza's economy is about 600 to uh, about 800 million dollars a year. That best case scenario, it reached 800 million dollars a year, mostly humanitarian aid from abroad. At normal cases, it was 600 million, which is nothing. People live off at basically less than four dollars a day in certain places, and the aid not only comes from abroad, but also from uh, certain countries that had vouched to help, like Saudi Arabia pays um, uh, as part of the Palestinian uh, Authority's uh, budget. Some of that budget goes to Gaza, but not all of it, like a small fraction. And isn't the money controlled by Israel, What what's actually allowed it's to come in and help? Yeah, forget about the banking system. Any transfers, taxpayers' money that goes to the Palestinian Authority has to pass through the Israelis first, and the Israelis have held that money for the longest time. Sometimes they hold it back for, for almost three to four months as a leverage card against the Palestinians. We had the Norwegians basically stepping in um, two weeks ago and uh, demanding from the from the Israelis to release that money, that's Palestinian money, but the Israelis continue to hold it. Not a single dime that goes into the even the okay, uh, occupied Palestinian territories in the West Bank or Gaza without having to pass through the Israelis first. And they have basically hijacked that. They don't release that money. They've done it in the past and they're doing it now as well. It's a form of financial uh, sanction and uh, stupid, uh, I'm, I'm going to call it stupid. It's one of the most stupid decisions to be taken by a country against basically unarmed civilians, including the part that's not fighting them, the West Bank. They're hold, withholding money from officers in the West Bank who, who used to collaborate with, with the Israelis. I mean, the PA is cooperating on the, on the security level with the Israelis. The Israeli security. So why are you withholding that money from them? They need to be paid on a monthly basis. Otherwise, you'll you find at your hand a socio-economic situation that reads explosion. The Israelis targeting on, Palestinians. They, sorry, go ahead. No, just quickly uh, on the ground. What is the currency uh, that's that the, the street currency that's used? Is it Israeli shekels? Is it U.S. dollars? What what is the main currency? It's mostly the Israeli shekel, but at one point or other, Palestinians also trade with the dollar. Uh, it has more significance to them, mostly in Gaza as well, but all of them trade with the shekel. It's enforced on them by the Israelis. The Israelis forced that currency on them. So imagine yourself living in, in uh, Paris in 1942, and uh, you have to uh, basically uh, buy anything with the Nazi currency. You have to do anything through the Nazis. You cannot be paid unless the Nazis basically allow your allowance to go into your bank account or basically to your hands. And you have to say thank you. And then you have to wait for them to give you charity from your own money. Because them giving you your own money is considered charity to them. They're helping out. They're helping out from your own pocket after basically retaining that money for the longest time and making you beg on the streets and go into debt. It's literally just like the Nazis did to France and other countries. Yeah, during during the Vichy Vichy France under uh, Nazi occupation, absolutely. Deutsch the Deutschmark was the uh, uh, currency of the day at that point, and the French resistance were uh, labeled and decreed as terrorists, of course, by the German occupiers. So familiar, isn't it? History. Um, so, Leila, you know look. International law, go sorry, ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, you no, go. go the international ahead, law was amended. So actually, the international law is because of the French resistance in France against the Nazi occupation of France and against basically the collaborative Vichy French government, that's called the Vichy government, that collaborated with the Nazi occupation, 
who used to call the resistance fighters as terrorists, they, they used to label them terrorists, it was because of the resistance in France that the international law was amended to fit the situation that if any grain of your soil is under occupation, you are entitled to hold arms and resist that occupation anywhere by any means and at any time, even if your own government is against that. This is the international law. It's, it's, a, it's a cardinal rule in international law when it comes to resistance. You are entitled to resist even if your own government is against you. And if civilians go uh, uh, as a, basically, uh, if they die during that uh, act of resistance, it's collateral damage. Uh, you have to basically focus on those who are your enemies plus those who are collaborating with them. If there is a civilian outside that scope, then basically that's collateral, but you are not labeled as terrorists because of it. I think there's a UN resolution on it. Is it UN resolution 194? I'm not sure. Um, I have to double there's, check. Uh, but UN resolution 194. There's also UN Charter uh, Article 51. There, I mean, you name it. This is all under the umbrella of United of of uh, the international law. And uh, basically, I studied international law, so like I do understand these matters. And I had to go very well deep into that to to, to try to name the situation of a single country whenever you have an act of resistance or is it an act of terrorism. So you, some people just try to hide under the guise of resistance and they commit terrorist acts. But uh, in our case, in Hamas's case, everything that they have done by text, it's like textbook resistance from day one until now. And this, this makes it almost impossible uh, to, to deal with this situation once the United States, uh, Israel, the European Union, the UK, all of the people that are backing Israel so vehemently arming them as well as co-belligerents, uh, when they're regarding Hamas just with the terrorist label and ignoring all of the things that, which you just mentioned, the international law that does support armed resistance against an occupation, this makes it almost impossible to move forward with anything or to get any sort of a just settlement out of this. And it really, what it's been used here is to allow Israel to have the green light to basically act with total impunity and, and put collective punishment on the people of Gaza. I mean, it's obvious this is the main bolt point, isn't it? This is the thing that holds the whole framework together. It's uh, Hamas, the terrorist organization. But not every country in the world has labeled Hamas a terrorist organization. Some the, the Western powers have, but most countries have not. It's the same with Hezbollah, isn't it? Go ahead. Same thing as well. And I have to point out uh, this matter. Even if those states, I mean, like if you have 10 states or 20 states or let's say 60 states out of 193 states at the moment that label Hamas or Hezbollah as terrorists, that doesn't mean that they are terrorists de facto just because they consider them terrorists. They are only seen as terrorists in those countries, not worldwide. The United Nations have not labeled them as terrorists because the moment the United Nations moved to label them as terrorists, that makes Charles de Gaulle and the French resistance terrorists by de facto, like literally. So they cannot go and label them as terrorists. And even with the UK government, if you remember at one point or another, they used to differentiate between the political wing and the military wing at one point. And then they used to, to try to, to justify why they're putting the military wing uh, of Hamas or for Hezbollah on, on the terror list is because there are some collateral civilians dying um, that are controlling or constricting the lives of people that are under their uh, in their uh, territories of uh, like the, the, where they hold power. Um, but then again, as I said, there are 193 countries in the world. If all, all of them say that they are terrorists and one state that says they are not terrorists, under international law, unless that law gets amended, they are considered resistance. And that's why the United Nations is yet to label them as terrorists. And so just the to be US at one point, just... they couldn't find that. So you have... Yeah, go ahead, sorry. So no, just to continue, but just to be clear, under U.S. law, they may be deemed as terrorists. Under U.K. law, they may be, but under international law, they absolutely are not. So what does that mean, Layla? That means that this designation is a political designation at the end of the day. It's not an objective definition of the group. Go ahead and continue what you're saying. Yeah, it's 100% political, and then you get to see it, because if other nations refuse to label them as terrorists, that tells you that it's the, it's the opinion of one state, or two states, or ten states, but it's not the opinion of 193 states. That's one thing. The other thing is that because the United States and the UK and France and other big nations couldn't convince the world at one point or another to label certain entities as terrorists, they came up with this proverb, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. Well, you're not fighting freedom, you are a resistance fighter. You're resisting occupation. 
So the idea is to you, they may be terrorists, but to others, they are resistance fighters. So no matter what, there's always that umbrella of international law covering what Hamas is doing, what Hezbollah is doing, what any resistance movement on the ground in an occupied country is doing, they're covered by international law. Whether the US like it or not, or the UK likes it or not, until they amend that law, they have to basically go with that. That's why basically they only um, uh, impose sanctions from, from their own side. So you don't see UN sanctions against Hamas or UN sanctions against Hezbollah. It's always U.S. sanctions against Hezbollah and the allies of the U.S. move in to actually humor them because of the banking system that has to deal with the dollar. It has to pass to the U.S. banks or the Euroclear system at one point. If at any point France puts, uh, let's say, um, Leila Hatoum on the terror list, people who deal with France and they don't want uh, France to be angry with them, they will comply with that. But the rest of the nations won't. They will continue to trade with me. There's also an effort to put the Russian military to, as a te terrorist organization, Wagner military as a te uh, terrorist organization. All of these are being pushed all, all the time. But it, what's interesting, Leila, as you say this, France, who's in the G7, who's on the UN Security Council, have not designated Hezbollah as a terrorist group. A lot of people aren't aware of that. And I think the reason is for what you said before, because it would undercut their own historical uh, resistance movement uh, during the Second World War. Um, so, yes, yes. So, so speaking of uh, Southern Lebanon right now. So, just to remind people, Southern Lebanon is technically part of it is occupied by is legally occupied by the Israelis. Uh, we've seen fighting intensify. So, in the remaining minutes of this segment, Leila, I'd like to get your assessment of the situation there as it stands right now. Go ahead. Okay, so the situation at the moment is cautious calm along the southern Lebanese front, which is basically northern occupied Palestine, northern Israeli front. Um, Hezbollah has so far maintained its part of the ceasefire of not basically carrying out any retaliatory acts to the acts of aggression that the Israelis have shown overnight. The Israelis have bombarding southern Lebanese villages along the blue line, which is the withdrawal line marked that, that, that was marked by the United Nations to show where the Israelis had withdrawn from some of the Lebanese territories. However, we have to uh, also point out one thing, that Israel continues to occupy Lebanese territories. So Lebanon is always in self-defense mode, whereas the Israelis are aggressors. Uh, at around 6.45 to 6.48 a.m. this morning, um, the Israelis bombarded the, the Marjayun and Sahel Khiam, basically uh, agricultural field uh, and valley uh, with, with bombs, before basically stopping around ceasefire time. Um, we had received the, the, the numbers initially that it was it happened after ceasefire. Now we made sure we, we actually checked the information on the ground. They stopped by around seven o'clock, so they stuck to the uh, ceasefire. However, Israel continues to have uh, what you call uh, aggression uh, acts of aggression against Lebanon. So it's a breach of a ceasefire when te in terms of uh, the drones that they send across to the uh, to the southern Lebanese sky. So over south, uh, sovereign Lebanon and. So, and you have Israeli drones flying for the past um, uh, few hours. Um, I mean, I, I stopped counting after the ninth hour had passed. So they, they were in, in breach of actual ceasefire for almost nine hours. No bombardment, but they do have attack drones. Each drone has at least two missiles. Each missile is no less than eight kilograms, and it can cause a lot of damage at one point if it's thrown or casted from a, a long distance. So, so just to be clear, um, is Hezbollah attempting to uh, respect this ceasefire that's focused on Gaza as an so extension of it? it? So far, they have not. Yeah, so far, Hezbollah has respected the ceasefire. They have not at any point uh, retaliated against the acts of aggression that Israel had shown overnight or the drones that have been basically combing the skies of southern Lebanon since the morning until now. I was there for two hours briefly along the southern borders before I came down to Beirut. Uh, the situation over there is cautious calm. Hezbollah is maintaining their side. The Israelis are not because they have their drones crossing the blue line all the way to the inside, well inside sovereign Lebanese territories. And also just a few days ago, um, if you could elucidate some details on this, uh, Hezbollah uh, fired a missile uh, which pretty much wiped out uh, an Israeli military base. I'm not sure how big the base was, but... It
it looked like the damage was pretty thorough. Um, that looked like a major blow to the IDF, um, an unprecedented blow. Maybe you could uh, tell us about uh, how what this means in perspective of previous exchanges. And um, has Israel been able to respond in kind or have they was this a complete surprise on their part? Go ahead. Um, following the Israelis, uh, the Israeli occupation forces targeting Lebanese civilians and killing them in South Lebanon, including two reporters, um, uh, colleagues of ours who actually died, a woman and uh, a cameraman, uh, and uh, basically their guide in the south also died, so three civilians. Hezbollah targeted Israeli military posts along, uh, basically um, behind the blue line, and uh, they used the Burkan uh, uh, missile. This is a new form of missiles that Hezbollah uses for the first time during the war. It's used it two weeks ago and uh, recently. This missile is about half a ton of explosives. They used two missiles to hit the Beranit uh, uh, military posts uh, in, in the Northern Front. And then they basically followed it by another two missiles. So that's basically a total of two tons of explosives falling on that military post and wiping it out because the artillery came from there and they basically most of the drones were coming from there as well. But they didn't target civilian areas, um, despite the fact that Hezbollah had said a civilian for a civilian and a military for a military and a target for a target. But they tried their best to stick to targeting military uh, and Israeli for, uh, military forces, Israeli occupation forces and armed uh, uh, Israelis rather than civilians. So they, they say we reserve the right to respond uh, if any Lebanese civilians are targeted. We may, they if they choose once. to. They, yeah. Yes, they yep. did that. I mean, uh, after the, following uh, the Israeli occupation forces targeting a civilian car that had three little girls and their grandmother and their mother, and the girls were burnt alive in that attack, and their grandmother died. Uh, unfortunately, uh, there was mass anger. Uh, uh, I mean, I, unfortunately, that they died, and it's a catastrophe as well to see three little girls burning in front of your eyes, and you can't pull them out from the car. Um, Hezbollah retaliated basically by attacking a military base. Uh, they targeted a logistics car, which is considered kind of civilian rather than military, and uh, they killed one civilian, one Israeli civilian who was collaborating with the army, who was helping the army logistically. And Nasrallah came out with a speech, and he said, "For the first time ever, we target a civilian, and this is showing a civilian." is targeted in, in exchange of you targeting our civilians. This changed completely the rules of engagement because the Israelis in the past used to target civil, Lebanese civilians en masse, as we say, and they always had slept soundly because they knew that their civilians will not be targeted by Hezbollah because Hezbollah adheres to the rules of engagement and war in Islam, which is you don't target women, you don't, sorry, you don't rape women, you don't kill children, you don't target the elderly, you don't target houses of God. But with Hezbollah changing the rules of engagement and telling them, if you continue to target our civilians, we'll target yours. That's when the Israelis had to basically pull the brakes at one point and maintain the cautious uh, uh, type of bombardment. They started bombard bombarding the fields. They started bombarding um, some remote houses. And that's it. Yeah, and, and hence, this is exactly what we've seen in that uh, very cautious and measured exchanges. So going forward, this will get uh, even more, uh, unfortunately, more worrying. We hope that uh, this ceasefire holds. Le Leila Hatoum, uh, veteran journalist from Lebanon, we really appreciate your contribution on TNT this week. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time. And stay safe uh, in your travels and your work. Thank you, Layla. And thank you to our listeners for joining us for this first hour. We've got a whole lot more coming up on the other side. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. You're listening to TNT, today's news talk. Top of the hour news headlines coming right up. We've got a lot, lot more to cover on the other side, including Matt Lee in New York and more and more. See you in a few.